episode 61. His food doesn't stick going down, does it? Miss Maudie said it. Two tight lines had appeared at the corners of her mouth. She had been sitting silently beside me, her coffee cup balanced on one knee. I had lost the thread of conversation long ago when they quit talking about Tom Robinson's wife and had contented myself with thinking of Finch's Landing and the river. Aunt Alexandra had got it backwards. The business part of the meeting was blood-girdling. The social hour was dreary. Maudie, I'm sure I don't know what you mean, said Mrs. Merriweather. I'm sure you do, Miss Maudie said shortly. She said no more. When Miss Maudie was angry, her brevity was icy. Something had made her deeply angry, and her gray eyes were as cold as her voice. Mrs. Merriweather reddened, glanced at me, and looked away. I could not see Mrs. Farrow. Aunt Alexandra got up from the table and swiftly passed more refreshments, neatly engaging Mrs. Merriweather and Mrs. Gates in brisk conversation. When she had them well on the road with Mrs. Perkins, Aunt Alexandra stepped back. She gave Miss Maudie a look of pure gratitude, and I wondered at the world of women. Miss Maudie and Aunt Alexandra had never been especially close, and here was Auntie silently thanking her for something, for what I knew not. I was content to learn that Aunt Alexandra could be pierced sufficiently to feel gratitude for help given. There was no doubt about it. I must soon enter this world where, on its surface, fragrant ladies rocked slowly, fanned gently, and drank cool water. But I was more at home in my father's world. People like Mr. Hectate did not trap you with innocent questions to make fun of you. Even Jem was not highly critical unless you said something stupid. Ladies seemed to live in faint horror of men, seemed unwilling to approve wholeheartedly of them, but I liked them. There was something about them, no matter how much they cussed and drank and gambled and chewed, no matter how undelectable they were, there was something about them that I instinctively liked. They weren't hypocrites, Mrs. Perkins, born hypocrites, Mrs. Merriweather was saying. At least we don't have that sin on our shoulders down here. People up there set em free, but you don't see em settin' at the table with em. At least we don't have the deceit to say to em, Yes, you're as good as we are, but stay away from us. Down here we just say, You live your way and we'll live ours. I think that woman, that Mrs. Roosevelt's lost her mind, just plain lost her mind, coming down to Birmingham and trying to sit with them. If I was the mayor of Birmingham, I'd... Well, neither of us was the mayor of Birmingham, but I wished I was the governor of Alabama for one day. I'd let Tom Robinson go so quick the missionary society wouldn't have time to catch its breath. Calpurnia was telling Miss Rachel's cook the other day how bad Tom was taking things, and 
She didn't stop talking when I came into the kitchen. She said there wasn't a thing Atticus could do to make being shut up easier for him. That the last thing he said to Atticus before they took him down to the prison camp was, Goodbye, Mr. Finch. There ain't nothing you can do now, so there ain't no use trying. Calpurnia said Atticus told her that the day they took Tom to prison, he just gave up hope. She said Atticus tried to explain things to him and that he must do his best not to lose hope because Atticus was doing his best to get him free. Miss Rachel's cook asked Calpurnia why didn't Atticus just say yes, you'll go free and leave it at that. It seemed like that'd be a big comfort to Tom. But Calpurnia said, because you ain't familiar with the law. First thing you learn when you're in a law and family is that there ain't any definite answers to anything. Mr. Finch couldn't say something so when he doesn't know for sure it's so. The front door slammed, and I heard Atticus's footsteps in the hall. Automatically, I wondered what time it was. Not nearly time for him to be home, and on missionary society days, he usually stayed downtown until black dark. He stopped in the doorway. His hat was in his hand, and his face was white. Excuse me, ladies, he said. Go right ahead with your meeting. Don't let me disturb you. Alexandra, could you come to the kitchen a minute? I want to borrow Calpurnia for a while. He didn't go through the dining room, but went down the back hallway and entered the kitchen from the rear door. Aunt Alexandra and I met him. The dining room door opened again and Miss Maudie joined us. Calpurnia had half risen from her chair. Cal, Atticus said, I want you to go with me to Helen Robinson's house. What's the matter? Aunt Alexandra asked, alarmed by the look on my father's face. Tom's dead. Aunt Alexandra put her hands to her mouth. They shot him, said Atticus. He was running. It was during their exercise period. They said he just broke into a blind, raving charge at the fence and started climbing over, right in front of them. Well, didn't they try to stop him? Didn't they give him any warning? And Alexandra's voice shook. Oh, yes. The guards called to him to stop. They fired a few shots in the air, then to kill. They got him just as he went over the fence. They said if he'd had two good arms, he'd have made it. He was moving that fast. Seventeen bullet holes in him. They didn't have to shoot him that much. Cal, I want you to come out with me and help me tell Helen. Yes, sir, she murmured, fumbling at her apron. Miss Marty went to Calpurnia and untied it. This is the last straw, Atticus, Aunt Alexandra said. Depends on how you look at it, he said. What was one Negro more or less among two hundred of them? He wasn't Tom to them. He was an escaping prisoner. Atticus leaned against the refrigerator, pushed up his glasses, and rubbed his eyes. We had such a good case, he said. I told him what I thought, but I couldn't in truth say that we had more than a good chance. I guess Tom was tired of white men's chances and preferred to take his own. 
Ready, Cal? Yes, sir, Mr. Finch. Then let's go. Aunt Alexandra sat down in Calpurnia's chair and put her hands to her face. She sat quite still. She was so quiet, I wondered if she would faint. I heard Miss Maudie breathing as if she had just climbed the steps, and in the dining room, the ladies chattered happily. I thought Aunt Alexandra was crying, but when she took her hands away from her face, she was not. She looked weary. She spoke, and her voice was flat. I can't say I approve of everything he does, Maudie, but he's my brother, and I just want to know when this will ever end. Her voice rose. It tears him to pieces. He doesn't show it much, but it tears him to pieces. I've seen him when... What else do they want from him, Maudie? What else? What does who want, Alexandra? Miss Maudie asked. I mean this town. They're perfectly willing to let him do what they're too afraid to do themselves. It might lose them a nickel. They're perfectly willing to let him wreck his health doing what they're afraid to do. They're... Be quiet. They'll hear you, said Miss Maudie. Have you ever thought of it this way, Alexandra? Whether Makem knows it or not, we're paying the highest tribute we can pay a man. We trust him to do right. It's that simple. Who? And Alexandra never knew she was echoing her 12-year-old nephew. The handful of people in this town who say that fair play is not marked white only. The handful of people who say a fair trial is for everybody, not just us. The handful of people with enough humility to think when they look at a Negro there but for the Lord's kindness am I. Miss Marty's old Christmas was returning. The handful of people in this town with background, that's who they are. Had I been attentive, I would have had another scrap to add to Jem's definition of background, but I found myself shaking and couldn't stop. 